Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. We're back with another episode of the AAF Exchange, where we will look at the economic impact and response of the COVID-19 pandemic with AAF President Douglas Holtzakin. Doug, thanks for joining us again. Morning, Kyle. Great to be back. So yeah, first off, last week you took a uh, a rare vacation. Um, <laughs> and even on your vacation, while you were at the beach, you decided to put on a suit and testify before the Joint Economic Committee. Five days without a suit, and I was feeling awkward, so I just I just yeah. I caved. What can I say? Yeah. So I mean, how was your almost week off? Uh, it was fantastic, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, got to see some family. Uh, I love the beach. I've been going to the Outer Banks, Nags Head, Kitty Hawk, Hill Devil Hills, Corolla duck that area since 1971 so that's a few years ago and um you know it was great to be back but most importantly i think the truth is it was great to be somewhere different right you know after all those months in the condo it was great to go somewhere else yeah i can uh, i can uh, very much endorse that i mean i've had a great time up here in vermont the last couple of weeks it was great just to get out of dc and spend some time with family and enjoy some of the outdoors up here in Vermont. So let's turn back to Washington. Uh, the big news the past couple of weeks is, of course, <laughs> the negotiations over the next coronavirus relief package. Um, it's been almost a week since the federal unemployment supplement expired. Um, people are understandably worried about that. Um, where are we with these negotiations and what are the main sticking points? Well, uh, the, the other thing that's out there to expire is uh, this coming Saturday, the 8th, um, the PPP will expire. So there, there are pressures on the business front. There are pressures on the household front uh, to get a deal. But to be honest, things look bad right now. I mean, I, I, I think there's a fancier term than that, but that's that's the truth. Um, they are in the news reports I've seen. They are hashing out some details on the postal service and you know what's going to go on with the pension bailout. Um, none of which has anything to do with these key things we've talked about for weeks. What's going to be the federal role in unemployment insurance? How much money will there be for state and local governments? Will there be business liability protection? Um, you know, they're dug in. And, uh, you know, as one would expect, you can turn on the TV and see the Republicans accusing the Democrats of being unwilling to, to budge. And Nancy Pelosi has flatly said, 600 or bust, I'm not changing it. Heroes Act is right. I, you know, I want $3.4 trillion. And over there on the other side, you hear, you know, Pelosi, Schumer saying, Republicans are are neglecting poor people and they're they're not going to budge and this is all wrong and you know that's classic uh, Washington uh, stalemate at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I think I saw an article a couple of days ago that it was um, the Postmaster General was actually involved in the negotiations over this. I think it's got to be one of the first times I've seen that. When you call in the Postmaster General, you're in trouble. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's a rule of thumb. <laughs> I'm going to go off script for a second, but. How much of this is normal? You've been around these crisis debates for a while now. How much of this is a normal legislative process? I, I think this is a not unusual pattern for these kinds of negotiations where you have a, a high stakes piece of legislation, um, both sides deeply dug in, complicated issues, right? This isn't like CARES. It's, it's really complicated right now. And sometimes you have to fail before you can succeed. And they're failing right now. Mm -hmm. So I want to get back to the sticking points negotiations in a moment. 
But first, I want to talk about the negotiating positions. Uh, on the one side, we have Democrats' Heroes Act. Um, I think they passed the House passed that a couple of weeks ago um, now. And on the other side, the Republicans have the Heels Act. What are the major differences between these two proposals, and how far apart are they? They are worlds apart. You know, the the Heroes Act is in excess of three trillion dollars. The Heels Act is aiming toward one trillion. Um, you know, a tr there's a trillion dollars in the Heroes Act for state and local governments. There isn't any money in the Heels Act for state and local governments. They're just providing flexibility for money previously uh, sent to the states and localities in the CARES Act. Um, there's nothing for the unemployment insurance in the Heels Act. The the uh, the Heroes Act put the $600 uh, uh, through the first quarter of 2021, and so they are they are worlds apart. And um, you know, for those who who want to go through the lists extensively, we have good write-ups of everything in the Heroes Act on the website. We have good write-ups of everything in the Heels Act on on, on the website, and you know. In both cases, it was, uh, you know, I, I had a little bit of um, nervousness about asking the staff to do the kind of work they had to do to write those up because I knew neither was going to become law. But they are the negotiating positions. And if you want to understand them, that's the place to go. Got it. I want to go through some of the sticking points. I know we've talked about these at length on numerous episodes, but I think it's good to, 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 to have a reminder We've mentioned the so-called deadline for a deal was July 31st, um, because that's when the 600 a week federal UI supplement expired. Um, we've again, we've discussed this several times on the podcast that extending that supplement, um, like the Heroes Act does, would slow the the economic recovery. Has there been a shift in this thinking at all since the parties have introduced these bills? No. Um, whether it's uh... Uh, scientific belief or political positioning on the left that you have this sort of uniform drum beat that you have to keep the 600, uh, uh, any, any dollar short of 600 and the economy is going to crater, you know, sort of wildly overstating, I think, the the reality. And on, and on the right, you have, uh, I think, comparably uh, naive assertions that you can just get rid of it and there'll be no consequence. I mean, it's just not true. Um, in the end, the, the $600 uh, bonus does two things. It provides income to people and it provides a barrier to reemployment. The trouble is the more income you provide, the bigger is the barrier to reemployment, the lower the barrier to reemployment, the less income you have. And so you've got this fundamental tension. So what should that, that should be solved by getting as many people back to work as possible. That's the best source of income and having other avenues to get things to people, um, things like the checks they've talked about or um, SNAP and other um, federal uh, social safety net programs and, and evaluate the package. But, but they're fighting over, over this narrow issue. And, you know, I, I was taught a long time ago by a former Ways and Means chairman, uh, Bill Thomas, that sometimes you need to broaden the scope of the negotiations to get a deal. Because if it's too narrow, one side wins, the other side loses, and you're done. This is the China trade problem, right? Yeah. It's too narrow, and, and, and someone's going to lose face. So, mm -hmm. Need to broaden it out and talk about some other things. Trying to find that win-win situation that both sides can save, go home and and uh, say that they won something on. Yeah, that's it. Not not complicated. <laughs> what about the money for state and local governments? Uh, you mentioned it earlier in this podcast, but 
it's another topic that's being discussed. Uh, I think you said one side has nothing in there. The other side has additional funding in there. Um, but can you just remind listeners about where about the problems over this debate and where the debate is going? So, so again, if you think about the situation for the states and localities, um, they have uh, really three things going on. Uh, number one, they have additional spending as they have had to respond to the COVID-19 crisis, that whether it's um, you know first responders or health facilities or um, PPE, whatever it may be, they, they've got that have greater expenditures. Uh, second thing they've got uh, is reduced revenues. Right? When the business community shuts down, the sales tax is shut down too. And so there's a lot of um, shortfalls out there in, in budgets uh, for states and localities. And then they have ongoing problems in, in their pensions and other things in some places they're quite severe. Illinois is the poster child for that. Um, the first two are legitimate, um, you know, items for discussion in this package. Uh, the last is not. And Republicans have been concerned that it would bleed over to that. Um, so that's part of the issue. The second is the middle piece. The revenue loss is hard to quantify. It's the what would have been. And, you know, what's your incentive as a mayor? Well, this was the year we thought we were going to get an extra billion. You know, mm -hmm. it was we were sure of it. So give us that. And so that's that just becomes a fight. Um, and it's complicated by the fact that we do have in existence the Federal Reserve's municipal lending facility. And, um, you know, that that liquidity facility is there for people to borrow against shortfalls that are temporary. We all hope that the revenue shortfalls will, in fact, be temporary. And if we roll the clock forward a year, you will be back to a more robust economy and a more robust revenue flow. So, so some people think, well, they should just do it that way. That's what the federal government's doing. We're just borrowing. Look, why, why should we do it, not you? So that that just gets complicated in terms of trying to figure out what dollar figure should go into the appropriations to go out. And 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 it's complicated further, genuinely, I think, by how you think about risk. Right. Which, which risk is greater, doing too little or doing too much? And so you get into that. Got it. And what about making workplaces safer? Uh, a few episodes ago, we discussed your idea about a tax credits or to offset some of those expenditures, expenditures for companies. And we've also spent time talking about measures to make people confident in going back to work and yeah. employers confident in bringing employer, workers back. Um, with you know liability protections and all of that, where do we stand on these issues in the negotiations? So on the latter, the liability protection, we're we're at essentially ground zero. Still a demand by uh, Republicans for protection, not just for employers but for nonprofits, for you know churches, think tanks, name it. The range of entities, schools um, that are out there who potentially could get sued because of someone contracting uh, the virus on their premises, and they don't want a blanket protection. Their position is, look, if you take reasonable precautions, that should safeguard you against lawsuits. So if you meet a, a county standard or if you meet whatever standard is appropriate, the governor's put out guidelines, it, it, you should be good. Um, Democrats are rejecting this outright at the moment. So that there's been no public progress on that issue whatsoever. Um, on the making workplaces safe issue, uh, the Republican bill, the HEALS uh, bill, contains a, a workplace safety tax credit of the type that we've discussed on this podcast, where, you know, in an effort to make workers more confident to go back to work, uh, there will be a subsidy through the tax code for PPE, testing, um, 
hand sanitizers, all those kind of things, plus workplace modifications needed to allow social distancing and effective workplace um, uh, safety. So uh, I, I think that's a very sensible provision. Who knows if it makes it to the finish line? It hasn't been the centerpiece of any discussion that I'm aware of. Right? It doesn't show up in the press accounts or anything like that. Mm -hmm. It seems that that would be a good step in, you know, figuring out, as we've talked about, how to operate the economy in the, in the face of this virus. Um, but and so hopefully we see something in the in the final negotiations on that. I think it would be an especially good complement to other efforts for small businesses. I mean, they're the ones who I think are going to have the hardest time trying to figure out what to do. And so, um, you know, to get that sort of cash flow relief up front will be helpful. Um, what are the other sticking points you're watching? Um, what other issues should we be should we be paying attention to? I, I think the larger uh, dynamic really does uh, hinge around the issues we've discussed so far. You know, the UI, the states, liability protections. Um, there, there, there is, um, in the words of Republican uh, leader McConnell, a, a a wish list in the House bill, right? And so. You, that tells you the appetite for some of the scope of things on on the, the Republican side. It's very limited. Their view is you could there's a short list of things that should be in there. So the first thing to look for is at what point do you start trimming out things that appear to be extraneous to the the core negotiations and make it easier to get to the to the finish line. I, that's what I'm looking for a narrowing of the range of issues. All right. So will Congress get a deal? Will it be the White House and congressional Democrats, um, or is it even possible that there will be a no deal and no additional aid? I what consider no deal unthinkable, to be honest. Um, and I heard Leader McConnell say this morning, look, the White House believes and I believe that the economy needs uh, more of a boost. And so that to me signals that they, they intend to get to yes. Um, uh, what yes looks like, well, that remains to be seen. Um, so I I, I think failure to reach a deal is, is unthinkable at this point. Um, the scope and, and sort of magnitude of it, again, that's that those are really big sticking points. There's a huge gap between 3.4 trillion and 1 trillion, and that has to get narrowed. Mm -hmm. What does this do to people's confidence that they haven't reached a deal yet? Is that harming the uh, people's confidence in the economy? And could that slow the economic recovery even further? Uh, I, I don't know the answer with any great scientific precision, we know that consumer confidence has ticked down somewhat over the, the past month, and it's not a dramatic decline. Um, it doesn't get singled out. You know, Congress is, is killing us here. You know, I'm losing my faith. But, you know, it, you worry about additional headwinds, these self-created, when you've already got enough headwinds to the economy. Okay. And let's turn and talk more about the economic impact of the pandemic. Um, tomorrow, uh, the July jobs numbers are coming out. Uh, what should we expect and what will this tell us about the economic recovery? So um, I think um, the number looks to be something like 500,000 to a million plus or minus 2 million. You know, it's, it's, it's that kind of a situation. Uh, we know that we got some pretty big numbers um, in May and June. Uh, we also know that the middle of June uh, we saw substantial um, coronavirus outbreaks in the South and West. We saw additional mandated shutdowns of portions of those economies and the high frequency data, the sort of weekly things you can look at all seem to indicate that 
Um, job creation slowed and flattened out in the aftermath of that. Um, on the other hand, the Northeast could be doing great, right? There's less focus on that. So how it adds up becomes hard to judge. And there's the additional um, difficulty of there's the survey week, which is contains the, the day of June 12th. That's the week they always do the survey, the week that contains the 12th. And then there's after the survey week. And what we may be seeing slowdowns afterwards that will be reflected in the number. So um, we'll get a number. Uh, and I don't think it'll tell us a lot about uh, new about the recovery. I, I think we, we knew that we had a long way to go. Um, we lost 20 million jobs in April alone, um, that it was unlikely that we would snap right back by August, September, October. Um, and it was inevitable that there were going to be additional outbreaks uh, of the virus. We've been warned about that from the beginning, and this, we're seeing it. So I don't think we've learned a lot, to be honest, about the nature of the um, uh, recovery. It, it looks about the same as it did before to me on track, but not exactly satisfying. Mm -hmm. What other numbers are you looking at? This is one of my favorite questions to ask you because I know you're always you know, paying attention to everything when it comes to the economy. Um, maybe one of the good things about being an economist. Um, so what other numbers are you looking at that can give us an understanding of how the economy is doing? To be honest, um, I, I, I think I and most people are starting to get overwhelmed by sort of the invention of new real-time data. There's sort of you look at credit card data, you see a spending is holding up because that's pretty contemporaneous, and a lot of people aren't taking cash right now. Um, we have weirdly in the middle of a pandemic a national coin shortage on top of everything else, which is <laughs> remarkable. Um, you, you know, one of my friends was uh, was saying the other day that they had to do their laundry and that they couldn't find the proper coins to do it. So, have it. Uh, anecdotal evidence. <laughs> and I've seen signs at retail stores. You know, please pay with um, a credit card or a debit card. We're not doing any cash transactions. We have a coin shortage. We can't make change. So wow. that's it. So there, there's there's credit card data, which tells you, uh, you know, about the, the pace of spending. There are increasingly um, payroll stats that are being released without that are, you know, sort of masked for confidentiality. You don't know which um, companies and things, but it gives you an idea of how many people are clocking in. So are, is employment rising or falling on a weekly basis? You can find this out. The census has started to a monthly employment report, which they've never done before. Everybody's getting in the business of providing us with real-time data. The difficulty is um, it's noisy. Like in the good old pre-pandemic days, I used to regularly go on and say, don't believe one month's data. It's very noisy. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of bounce around in it. Well, we're now doing things on a weekly or even you know daily basis. That's incredibly noisy as well. I worry that it's not representative. It's not designed to be representative. It's just available. So you look at it and say, aha, mm -hmm. you know, the, the ADP employment report came out um, Wednesday morning. It said we got 167,000 jobs in July. That's an alternative version of measure of employment growth. It's been under the BLS number by a total of 8 million over the previous two months. So it's hard to sort of do genuinely scientific representative sampling of the U.S. economy. And, and the real-time data don't pretend to do that, so I worry about leaning on them too much. Um, tying this back into uh, the negotiations happening with Congress, um, will a really strong jobs number or really str any strong economics report, how will that affect the momentum of, of the negotiation and the final bill? Um, correctly or otherwise, that, so now toss economic science out whatever window you're next to. Um, 
if, if we got a, a number tomorrow morning of a, of a million a million jobs lost, panic ensues and you get a big deal and, and it's over. And if somehow it comes out not at a million, which is close to the consensus, comes out at five million, there's a good chance that they, the Republicans just wait longer. And mm-hmm. um, so you can see it will influence the negotiations. There's no question. And, and big magnitudes at either end uh, change the bargaining power considerably. Gotcha. Um, so one final topic. Um, last week, you again uh, took some uh, time out of your vacation and wrote a dish last week um, because it was on a uh, uh, an episode of another podcast you listened to this week in vi- virology. Um, the episode, what's that? TWIV. That we refer to it as TWIV. This week in virology. TWIV. Uh, so this episode was about the COVID-19 testing. Um, yeah. What did you find interesting about this podcast? So um, I've done a lot of testing in my life, right? There's uh, statistical testing. You do you do statistical analysis and you, there are formal tests for whether what you found is statistically significant and, and thus a finding or if it's just noise. Um, I've been a college professor uh, and we do tests and, and all of that. And um, what this did is sort of clarify my thinking. I'd been unhappy about the discussion over testing and I couldn't put my finger on why. This made it clear. You test for different things. So in uh, college, there are pass-fail tests. Minimum competency, that's all we're looking for. Are you over the line? There's also proficiency tests. Like, you know, how good are you? We want to find out if you're in the in the top 1%. We do that in, in uh, when you take tests to go to grad school, things like that. I think of the tests that we're relying on and pushing so hard as proficiency tests. They're clinical grade tests and they allow uh, physicians to pretty accurately diagnose if you've had the virus and, if, and, and where you are in the course of the virus's life. And that course is actually really important because you get infected and then the virus starts to multiply. It actually multiplies exponentially. So you might have you know, 100 and within a few hours, you're, you're talking about having millions of virus uh, cells, and they're all uh, sort of throwing off RNA, and that's what the tests catch. Well, they throw off up to you know millions and, uh, of these things, and then the immune system fights back, and it dies off, and you have uh, actually for weeks and months, small amounts of RNA getting spun off um, as, a, as a residual. The clinical-grade tests catch up all of that, but as it turns out, you're not contagious when you're spinning off low levels, 80, 1,000. You're, you're contagious as in that exponential stage, right? You don't have symptoms yet because you haven't had your immune system fight back, but you're throwing off lots of virus, and cheap tests catch that. They miss the other stuff, so they miss about half the cases that the clinical-grade test catches, but I don't care about that. For purposes of testing for surveillance to see if the, the virus is out there and someone's contagious, the cheap tests are what we should do. And... Um, they could be as little as a dollar a day. You get up, take the test, positive test, you stay home, don't go to school, don't go to work, negative test, you're good, you're not contagious, off you go. Um, but what the FDA decided was it, it, we're not going to certify any test that doesn't catch 80% of the case cases that a clinical test would catch. Well, that's a mistake. Like you should drop the criteria to say 50 because the, the half of the cases you want to catch are contagious people walking around and you don't want them walking around and we can fight the virus more effectively. It also solves the problem we have in the US of contact tracing. Americans are notoriously private. 
They don't like telling people everyone they've met with and they won't do it. Well, if you're testing everyone, you're testing the contacts too. So you don't have to trace out who they are. Everyone gets tested. And so if it was a buck a day and we tested everybody every day, which is as a matter of distribution and compliance unrealistic, um, that would be $140 billion a year. In a world of CARES Acts, that's nothing. Mm-hmm. So I think we should have pedal to the metal on cheap tests. And this could be, a, there are also live tests, so there's no awful swabs. It could be as simple as a piece of contact paper with a little saliva on it, turns color. Now I know. And so it's like doing pregnancy tests, right? So, so, so who can help this along? Is it, uh, if we were going to do something like this, is it Congress, the White House, the FDA? All, all um, the above. I think the FDA has to change its standards for, for uh, approving tests. And I think the instead of um, putting money in for more labs and more people in labs, we don't, we don't want to have labs. It shouldn't go to the lab. Leave the labs to deal with those who are hospitalized, where physicians need to correctly figure out where they are, because it matters when you give steroids. It matters, you know, for all of these treatments, that where they, how far they progress. And the clinical tests will tell you that. But they take a long time and they're expensive. Well, so reserve those for, for those intensive care and let's let, let's get other kinds of tests as needed to, to stop the spread of the virus. And I, I don't know anyone who shouldn't be interested in that. Yeah. Why, why aren't we doing this already? That's my question to you, Kyle. I come on every week. I explain <laughs> this stuff and then I expect you to go make it happen. <laughs> I ask the questions. I don't have the, the answer. That's what you're here for, Doug. <laughs> uh, I, well. I think it's an. I think it's something that the medical community is just coming around to. Their reflex is to is to really find out everything about a disease. So they their reflexes have the clinical tests. But I think you know through the work of this uh, Michael Minna uh, up at Boston, like he's made this case, and people thinking, yeah, right. You know, an economist this appeals to you naturally because economics is all about marginal benefit, marginal cost. For purposes of, of surveillance, the marginal cost of this is enormous. The benefit's zero. So don't do the clinical test. Do the cheap test. Yeah. I mean, again, it seems like we talk about this all the time on this podcast that that we should be figuring out ways to operate the economy in the face of the virus. And if we're still months away from a final vaccine, I'm not a doctor. I don't I don't actually know how far away we are, but it would seem that this might be something to look at and figure out a way to to get to people. And I mean, honestly, uh, I try to caution people against this all the time. I think there's a lot of magical thinking going on on both sides. There's magical thinking that says we'll have a vaccine soon, it'll be fine. Virus will go away. That's probably not right. The FDA said they'll they'll approve any vaccine that's 51% effective. So almost half the time it's not going to work. So just having a vaccine does not mean it goes away quickly. Uh, And on the other side, there's this sort of belief that if we just have the right UI benefit and the right uh, checks and the right SNAP program and the right, well, I don't think that's going to work either. We've got to deal with the virus. And so this is something that concentrates on that ability to actually not close down the economy, run it, but deal with the virus. Well, I hope to be hearing more about that in the next couple of weeks from not just us, but more people um, out there. Um, Doug, thanks for taking time and joining us today. I know you got a busy schedule uh, back in the office, but... It's good to spend this uh, th- these 30 minutes with you. Yeah, this is a much better backdrop than the Atlantic Ocean, so I'm glad to be back. <laughs> it's close. It's a painting, at least. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you, Doug. Take care. Take care. 
I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.